Greetings, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to this narration of the web series Survivor Becomes a Dungeon, taken from r slash hfy. If you are new to the series, there is a playlist listed in the description. And as always, I hope that you enjoy. Chapter 18 But Maury Point of View In the mountain below my chin, my focus comes over the more imposing of the armored holy knights escorting the carrot. Likely the only reason he went down the way he did was due to the sheer fact that he was overwhelmed by the bulk of the remaining zombies after the rest of his fourteen buddies were cut down by my zombies Basti, Uruu, Rionim, and Revire. Now, I don't have to bring him back to life like the others, nor do I have the manner to try and drag his soul back to his corpse. However, I do want to test something out. As far as I've seen, naming and titling someone dramatically affects the physical form of being targeted by my intent. Yet, this has happened only after I brought the soul back into the body. With the one current exception to my studies being Zassiter, who never died in the first place. Yet, as I watch the armored corpse, I feel compelled to do something different than before. Instead of just mutating the corpse into a manor zombie like the others, I want to try and give this one intelligence. Rather, the word that comes to mind is ego. I'm not exactly flush with mana right though, especially after laying out the stone foundations for the longhouse with Zasta earlier. But looking over my core, I notice a considerable amount of glimmering within the green gem, which is most likely the byproduct of the vital energy coming thanks to the hunting of Jack's screwbirds. But this much, I can probably grant a name, but not do much else. Turning my gaze to the armored corpse, I'm still unsure what I expect to happen, but I commit anyway. Rise up, my knight. In life, you were scum who lashed out at innocence and rounded up people to sell due to sick and twisted values and morals. In death, you shall serve and save and protect those who you once scorned. Whereas now you shall tear down and destroy those who would trample upon the lives of others for the mere sake of profit or twisted religious dogma. I name you Dread. Stand and present yourself. With my speech done and the name bestowed, I feel the manner pour out of my core until I'm left with a faint twinkling within me. However, the knight before me begins to shudder and convulse. Yet, when he stops, he begins to stand slowly with intent, standing tall with a rigidly disciplined posture. He looks ahead and then around before looking up to where my core currently rests. His eyes, which should have been completely hidden within the room's darkness, and the cover of his helmet now glow with a faint yet distinct green hue. Dread point of view. I exist. As if a switch had been flipped, where once I was nothing, I am now here. The knight takes a moment to consider his surroundings. It's dark, empty, and lifeless, yet energy seems to permeate through the air. After a few moments, his gaze wanders before looking at the source of this energy. And at that moment, he knows it to be his creator. Dropping down to one knee, he lowers his head with reverence. Creator! His voice rumbles out with a rough yet alluring cadence. I give my thanks to you for willing me into existence. I know I am not alive, yet I am not dead either. Even though I now exist in this limbo. I swear to serve in your name. Even though his creator has not spoken to him yet, he feels the name imprinted on his very being. Vitmori, 
This dread shall be your blade. With that, he looks back to where he can sense his creator and gazes intensity. Bitmori point of view. Well then, uh, I am not sure what I expected, but it wasn't that. From what I can feel coming off of Dread, the knight that once inhabited that body is not the being that is currently in that body. I wonder how I knew to do this, or how I even knew this would work. Whatever this is, anyway. Looking closer, I check for his mana heart, yet it does not glow or pulse. Instead, besides his mana heart is a ball of energy. It is not precisely mana anymore, but it feels like vital energy. The same kind of energy that I absorb when my animals and zombies kill others. The light is frankly weak and not very impressive. But considering how little energy I poured into him, I shouldn't have expected much. Speaking up, I pull the sword and shield I got from this particular knight and set them down before Dread. I appreciate that vow that you gave to him to my service. However, you should know this. Currently, you are the least of my servants. For now, until I can give you more power... I want you to get used to your body. The form you currently inhabit is known as a knight, a battle master who wields both magic and blade with equal might. Train and discover the muscle memory within the body until you are comfortable with the sword and shield before you. Find the stances he knew. Familiarize yourself with the swings and blocks he trained with and master your new body. Phew, that sounds like a beginner step for him to focus on until I can flesh him out more. Dread eagerly takes up the sword and shield, sheathing the blade while holding the shield in his offhand. He then clangs his right hand against his chest in the form of a salute. As you will, creative Vidbori. I shall strive to master myself as you ordered. With that, he drew the blade and slowly got into stance, before beginning with a simple vertical slice. Jack, point of view. Oi! Looks like we're coming up in the camp now, he called back to Basti, who rumbled a low meow in response. Along the way, it seems the stress of the ordeal had gotten to Org, and she had since fallen asleep against Basti's back. She was dozing soundly while clutching the blackbird cub close, much to its dismay. Though, it was better in the girl's embrace rather than facing its mother after the stunt he pulled today. So in the end, he allowed it to happen, despite his discomfort. Jack fluttered down beside the cub and let out a chirping snicker as he watched him, now sitting on Basti's back during the last stretch of the track. So, uh, Kitty, how's the world outside the cave? He teased mischievously. The cub mules a bit and huffs, his discomfort under the weight of the surprisingly dense little girl getting to him. Still, it was pretty ballsy of you to sneak out in Basti's shadow. Though I suppose you aren't mature enough to make it out here on your own. Then it might be time to let the other cubs come out to play, Jack mused, looking over the back of Basti's head as she padded along. Basti, for her part, just chuffs with pride. Despite being upset about the cubs' recklessness, she couldn't help but be impressed with her little runt. However, she still was unsure about bringing all of her cubs away from the safety of Vidmorish chamber, rumbling out a soft chatter of consideration. Jack merely shrugs his wings before winking at the cub, now hopping forward on along Basti's back to perch on her head, much to her annoyance. She has to let it happen, lest she knocks the sleeping girl off her back. Now, now, Basti, you can't keep your cubs scooped up forever. The sooner you expose them to the world, the sooner they'll grow and find their places in it. He pumps up with the feathers for a moment and settles down, 
I mean, look at me. My mum kicked me out the moment I could fly, and I turned out all right, he mused confidently. Both mother and cub agreed as they murmured with uncertainty at Jack's statement. Oi, I take offense to that, Jack said indignantly, as he pecked at some fur on the ear before flitting away when she twitched in response. Before long, they were in view of the camp. One of the members spotted Basti and nearly shat themselves before remembering who and what she was. That's when they spotted Org on Basti's back, and they hurried off. Sylvia, it's Org, she's back. Org stirred at the shouting, rubbing her eyes and sitting up. The cub takes the opportunity to wriggle away and hop down off Basti's back before ducking away in her shadow. Basti slows to a stop once she's in the camp proper. Sylvia runs up fast as her short legs can take her. Org, she cries out, as her building anxiety finally bubbles over as relief. Now fully awake, Ork sees her mother, and instantly a downpour of tears starts streaming down her eyes. Mama! She cries out, much to the surprise of the rest of the camp, who knows her to be a notably silent girl. Ork pushes off Basti and falls onto her mother's arms as the two embrace, tears running down their eyes while Ork wails against her, sobbing miserably as the stress of what happened to her comes spilling out. The two ladies are left to each other's company as Zassiter approaches with Maury's vassals. Despite being informed of the event that transpired, he couldn't help but be surprised by the sight of what was once a very dead sparrow before him, alive, bigger, and clearly more powerful than before. Thank you, both of you, for bringing Og back, Zassiter said respectfully and lowered his head. Basti simply murmured in response, whereas Jack spoke up. It was no problem, we were merely doing as Whitmore told us, he said, downplaying the whole thing. Zaster merely smiles at the bird. No, really now, and here I was told that a brave and powerful bird single-handedly saved this little girl. I uh, believe his name was Jack. Jack sort of poofs up his feathers, his ego being sufficiently scratched. That, that, that's Captain, Captain Jack Sparrow, at your service he said as he lowered his head, holding one wing out while the other wing was out before standing up properly once more. At this, Sylvia looks over at Jack, her eyes red and puffy with tears. Thank you, Captain Jack, uh, for saving my precious little girl. At that, Jack looks a bit more bashful. It was no problem, seriously. Girlie was a good kid. She was obviously raised right. He chirped out the flatter of his wings. But before he could continue deflecting, Ork spoke up through her whimpering as she looked at Jackie. Thank you, Jackie. With that, she calms some more and clings to Sylvia as the woman scoops her up and walks off. Jack could feel the warmth pounding in his chest as he looked away. Yeah, yeah, you're welcome, kiddo, he murmured softly under his breath. And with that, he dismissed himself and flew into the tree line once more. End of chapter Chapter 19 Trisha, Teen Human Blacksmith Point of View Hey, thanks for escorting me. I know I said I could handle this on my own, but I appreciate the company. The young woman glanced back at Isak and flashed a smile. It looked like Isak needed to get out of the camp after what happened a few hours ago. Luckily, nobody blames him outright for losing the little dwarf girl, but it is bothering him. Isak offered a half-smile as he stretched the back of his head. No problem. Besides, uh, the shepherd warned us that non-combatants shouldn't be traveling alone in the woods, despite it being with Maury's territory. 
We're still visitors and trespassers here. It's better not to be alone, lest we come across some line. He explained simply enough, as his hand rested on the grip of his short sword. It's not like she wasn't there when the group meeting, but she wasn't exactly paying attention. She was just being honest. Right now, they were heading towards the mountain. She didn't intend to climb it, but she wanted to see if there was an opening near the base that they could get into. Remind me why you wanted to come here again, Isaac asked, mainly wanting to fill the silence as he looked around the tree line, spotting a deer that spotted them before it made a beeline away. Trisha shook her head at having to remind him and happily re-explained the situation. Well, I'm feeling a bit restless around the camp, and outside of carving wooden clubs and stone-tipped arrows, spears and wooden shields, I, uh... Well, I'm eager to get a forge going. I'm missing the heat, and we'll need a bunch of tools and supplies that we can't just trade or buy, considering our circumstances. All that to say that I want to check out the mountain caves to see if, if there are any ores that we can mine sometime soon. She explained in a somewhat long-winded way. Isak just nodding along at this point, having been listening for the mere relief of there being some dialogue to combat the silence. And what are we going to do about the light source? he asked, only just now realizing that going into a cave probably meant little to no light. And he forgot to pack a torch. Trisha couldn't help but snort with amusement at his apparent realization before gesturing to her hip. Hanging off of it was a torch with a strap, as well as a club with a strap of cloth binding around the grip. I've got us covered, Mr. Guard, she teased lightly as they reached the mountain base. Glancing from side to side, she began to walk along until she hopefully found the entrance that she was looking for. I'm surprised you're not carrying one. Aren't guardsmen trained to carry a torch with them for the sheer utility of it? She asked with a genuine curiosity. Isak huffed with a mild annoyance before shrugged a bit, and it's not like he even had any armor to speak of. Well, uh, I didn't realize we were going to be cave diving. Torches were meant to be used at by night guards, which wasn't a duty I was assigned to too often due to still being a trainee. He mentioned as the mainly just followed her trail, still surveying their surroundings, as if by being hypervigilant now, he can make up for this morning. Fair enough. Would you like to hold it? She offered with a bit of a grin having untied it from her belt and held it out to him. He rolled his eyes, but took it. Though, even as he strapped it to his sword belt, he realized he didn't have the means to light it. After deciding against inviting further teasing, he opted not to say anything about it. So, how'd you end up in the back of the cart? Trisha asked, sounding rather sheepish as the grass and gravel crunched beneath her feet. Isak was pretty surprised that she brought that up and averted his gaze as he decided to gather his thoughts. I, um, I picked up a shift of another guard. I was trying to earn some extra coin. You know, I wanted to buy a bit of a gift for Miriam. That, well, that part of the story doesn't matter, he said, shaking his head a bit before looking forward again. Well, uh, the other guard and I had similar builds, and the helmets covered our entire face for the most part. That is to say, the guard whose patrol I picked up got tapped to report in for a raid of some kind. I was all gung-ho and eager for it, too. Finally, I thought, a chance to prove myself as a trainee and show my worth. He sighed, his shoulders sagging as he rubbed the back of his head again. To say it didn't go like I expected is putting it extremely lightly. The next thing I knew, a team of six of our scars was in the middle of the slums, approaching a peacekin quarter right in the middle of the evening. The team leader bashed the brittle door down so easily, and that's 
when I saw Miriam. She was just there preparing for a coming-of-age dress for one of the girls in that household. The next thing I knew, she was being slammed down into the ground along with the Donkin family. Hoods were thrown over their heads and chains slapped to their wrists as the others began dragging them off. I tried to stop it, of course. I asked what they did wrong or what the charges were, but the others just looked at me oddly. Even with the helmets, I could tell that they were confused by my reaction. That's when the team leader approached and riffed off my helmet, and upon meeting my gaze, he seemed to understand what may have happened. At this point, Trisha stopped walking, having spotted what looked like a cave entrance not too far ahead. However, she wanted to hear his story without interruptions. Isak had also stopped walking and adopted a faraway look as he remembered what had happened so vividly. The team leader tossed the helmet other to someone else, and when I went to look to see who caught it, I received what I think was a metal elbow to my jaw. When I woke up, I was in underclothes and chained up with you and everyone else in the holding cells. Trisha nods in understanding. The end of the story was somewhat similar to everyone else's at the camp. I, uh, I see was all she could manage as they walked up to the cave entrance and peered inside. He looked inside the cave before he offered the torch back to her with a vague embarrassment. I, uh, can't light it. At that, despite the heavy mood that came over between them, she couldn't help but chuckle at his expense. <laughs> Don't worry, I've got it, she said gently, holding her hand out at the end of the torch. After a moment of focus, she spoke out the words of power for focusing her magic. Candlelight. She declares with a gentle familiarity. The end of the torch caught light as she pulled away, still holding the tiny flame in her palm. Now we've got two light sources, she mused, smiling more some more at Isak's pleasantly surprised expression. Continuing forward with the light, she began looking around the cave entrance before stepping further in. Looks like this isn't just some shallow cave. It opens up further ahead. Isak nodded intently, but before she got too far ahead, he moved forward and outpaced her when he glanced back and offered a half smile. At least let me do my job and escort you in here. I'll walk in front. With that, he continued along ahead of her. Though, as they walked, he glanced back to her again. How do you end up in all of this? She should have figured that he would have asked her in return after she pried into his business. Well, uh, I'm sorry to say that my story isn't nearly as dramatic or interesting as yours, she said bashfully before clearing her throat. Well, uh, it'll be something to fill the silence, at least, he countered with a smirk, glancing back at her before focusing on the natural cave tunnel before them. Well, she started to say before sighing a bit. <sighs> Just over a year ago, my father died of an illness, despite us spending most all the coin we had. Whatever Melody had grabbed a hold of him would not be cured by any of the medicines the church could offer. So, when he passed, I inherited the forge. She explains with a small amount of emotional detachment. She had already grieved and processed this. She also knew her father would probably give her a hard time if he knew she grieved for as long as she did. Well, with his passing, the notoriety of his name could only carry me so far. And soon enough, the only ones who would visit the forge would be the local butchers and chefs, needing their blade sharpened or their cookware reshaped. To say it wasn't enough was an understatement. I stubbornly clung to onto my father's forge, even going so far as to take several loans to keep up the food supplies and taxes, she says in a distant voice as she recalls her stresses and troubles. Stopping and holding the flame and palm closer to the stone wall, 
She scratches her fingernail against it for a moment and frowned, unsatisfied with what she saw. She kept walking. As anyone would have guessed, some tax collectors came. Eventually, after stopping them at the door a few times, they broke into the smithy in the dead of night and carried me off before I could properly resist. And soon enough, I found myself in the same holding cells as you. Isak nodded solemnly at that. I'm sorry for your loss, he offered, unsure what else to say to all that in the end. Trisha offers just a simple hum of acknowledgement as she traces her fingers along the natural ridges of the stone. Isak was now about to say something else when he heard a clattering of stone further ahead in a much more open cavern along the trail of the cave path. Hold up. Did you hear that? End of chapter. Chapter 20. Isak point of view. The hairs against the back of my neck begin to rise. Something in the air was warning him that the situation was about to turn nasty. Holding up the torch, he tried to illuminate the rest of the dark cavern before him. The orange flame was dancing against the walls when he caught movement from the corner of his eye, along with another clattering sound. Wheeling around to turn the torch to the source of the sound, he was met by the reflective gaze of a rat who sniffed at his general direction before scampering off. So, uh, Mr. Guard, the amused sounded voice of Trisha sounded out from behind him as she stepped closer and peered over his shoulder. Are you going to defend us from the mighty-looking rat? She could help but chuckle softly as she patted his shoulder before stepping past him and holding up the tiny flame in her palm to light the palm forward. Isak couldn't help but sigh and roll his eyes. <sighs> hey, we have no idea what's down. Not to mention, this mountain is the home of a dungeon core. Who knows what's lurking within here? He warned warily, now wishing that he had at least had some form of armor. Also, please stand behind me. If anything does happen, I'll probably be better equipped to handle it. Trisha just shrugged in response, looking around the open area of the space in the cave, before finding a path off to the right and gesturing to it. All right then, lead us down that way, she suggested. Turning to look, he hummed in consideration before simply nodding. Sure, all right. He agreed as he overtook her again and made his way forward, peering through the passageway. It seemed just wide enough for them to walk through if they walked side by side. Though he didn't seem to notice that the floors were more often flat-looking and occasionally smooth as they proceeded further and deeper into the cave. Seems a little empty to be considered a dungeon, Trisha murmured aloud. Casting a glance back at her, Isak couldn't help but agree. But for whatever reason, that made a sinking feeling in his gut grow even more. Yeah, no kidding. Maybe he just doesn't see the need to attack us. Isak offered a reason, seemingly trying to convince himself more than anything. As he heard another clatter of stones. Jeez, must be another rat, he considered, just focusing on the path before him as they took a right turn. Say, uh, have you even found any mining spots? He remembered to ask as he glanced back at Trisha. Trisha, in turn, was running her hand along another wall as she squinted at some of the cracks. Actually, yeah, there are a few spots around here. She mentioned as she turned and looked at Isak, who looked back at her, almost annoyed. He sighed softly. His nerves seemed to get the better of him. <sighs> if you found what you were looking for, why didn't you say anything? At that, Trisha just responded with a shrug. Well, uh, I wanted to find more. I wanted to know if maybe there was anything worthwhile. Forcing himself to remain in the moment, he ran his fingers through his hair and shook his head a little. 
I'm getting a bad feeling about all this. Let's acknowledge the ones you found and come back later with more people. I don't want to be this far from camp when it gets dark, especially considering the sun was in the latter half of the sky when we left. Trisha couldn't find an argument against that as she relented. Fair enough. Not to mention, we should probably fashion a lot more torches to try and illuminate some of the paths and chambers. She considered, noting how much carving she's got in the near future. Nodding with some vague sense of relief, Isunk stepped past her again and started heading down the path they walked. Taking a left, he suddenly stops as he is facing with the skeleton. Whoa! Oh shit! He stepped back, resting his hand on top of the crook of his blade. Oh, cool, a skeleton! Fisher enthused as she peeked around the corner to see what had freaked Isak out. Maybe it's one of the Vitmoris. Doesn't he use a mix of undead and beasts? She offered from what Shepard had told them. At that, Isak started to relax. Yeah... Maybe he's just checking to see what we're doing down here. He reasoned as he watched Trisha approach the skeleton with a smile. Sorry if we're troubling you, Vitmori. We're just looking for some oils and minerals to use back at the haven, she explained apologetically. At this, the creaking skeleton tilts its head, the purple gleam in its eyes staring at Trisha before it grabs his shoulders. Well, hey now, aren't you being a little too forward? She joked, but suddenly felt anxious as its grip tightened. Hey... Stop that! It, it hurts! She cried out as she started to try and squirm away. Suddenly realizing something was wrong, Isak rushed forward, pulling his blade from his hip but not drawing it as quickly and struck the pommel against the skeleton's skull, shattering the brain case as the skeleton crumpled in a heap of bones. Isak glanced back at Trisha, who was holding her left shoulder with a strained expression on her face. We should get out of here, he said firmly as he kicked away some of the bones. Yeah, okay. Trisha said softly, as she watched the bones with a deserved wariness before stepping forward after Isaac, as he retook the lead. As they returned to the last open cavern they were just in, he heard an unmistakable creaking of even more skeletons as he swung his torch around, trying to light up more of his field of view. To his horror, there were more of them and not just humanoid shapes, the amalgamation of corpses and bodies seemingly pieced together randomly as they began clattering and crawling towards him and Trisha. Run! he cried out, grabbing Trisha's wrist as he pulled her hard and started running back the way they came. There were more and more skeletons, but littered among them were old and desiccated undead groaning out as they shuffled forward. Two, in particular, were already blocking the way to the following path, which would lead them to the first cabin they entered. Gritting his teeth, Isaac bellowed out a war cry as he shoulder-charged the first undead, pushing Trisha past the other before drawing his blade with his now free hand. The undead that wasn't hit was now reeling back to strike, its movement easy to read and telegraphed as Isaac sidestepped before slashing out with the downward swing of his sword, the thoroughly sharpened blade cleaving through the undead's rotten shoulder in chest, cutting the undead down with ease. Now turning on the heel and rushing down the path again, as Trisha stayed as close as possible. Soon enough, they reached the first open cavern and were able to run through it with no opposition. Then came the main path, all the way out of the mouth of the cave as they finally reached the surface. The cool evening air rushed to greet them as the duo panted hot while trying to catch their breath. Isak eyed the mouth of the cave warily before glancing back over to Trisha. We need to warn the shepherd, but Maury almost killed us. Trisha was shivering with fear, her shoulder aching as she tried to not consider how close they were to dying. Yeah, let's go, 
she said softly, swallowing hard, and the two of them moved to get some distance between them and that cave. End of chapter. Chapter 21. Zassiter Point of View. I'm serious, Shepard. He tried to get us. Sent a whole swarm of skeletons and undead once we passed the first two rooms. He's murderous and is just waiting for us to let our guards down. Isak was frantic. The scene of the swarm of skeletons growing and trying to catch him and Trisha was still very fresh and vivid in his mind. Zassiter, however, was wholly unsure if it was all as he looked at the mountain and back at Isak. They were speaking somewhat privately in a secluded spot in the camp while Trisha's bruised shoulder was getting a poultice to reduce the swelling, thanks to Batissa. You don't understand, Isaac. I don't feel any murderous intent towards us from Bidmori. Are you certain it was him? Zassida pressed, gazing down into the teen's eyes. What else can you remember? Isak looked back up to the shepherd with a frown but nodded. His brow furrowed as he looked down at his childish chin thoughtfully. Oh, there was intelligence behind these skeletons. We were able to pass through at first without interruptions. But the moment we turned around is when we encountered resistance, he sighed a bit, remembering how close things were. If he were any slower, neither he nor Trisha would have made it out. He thought about what had happened some more, trying to think of anything before suddenly remembering something. Looking back at the shepherd who was watching him patiently, Isaac gazed into their eyes and noted the coloration of the diamond pattern on the shepherd's forehead. The eyes! The skeleton had glowing purple eyes! Does... Does that mean it wasn't but Mori? He already had a sinking feeling growing in his gut at the realization, since he had already riled up the entire camp when he first brought Trisha back. Zassiter merely smiles as he gently pats the young guard's shoulder with one hand. It's okay, Isaac. You were scared and nearly died. Anyone could assume the worst after such an encounter. Zassiter personally was relieved once they got things cleared up. Go rest up, Isaac. I'm sure that we've got a busy day ahead of us tomorrow, he said softly as he pulled his hand away and stepped aside. Isak lowered his head in response. Yes, thank you, Shepard, for helping me clear things up. With that, they stepped away and walked off, going to check on Trisha. Zassida sighs a bit as he watches Isak go before heading off to his tent. He had an early dinner today anyway, and he wanted to rest before climbing the mountain again. With Maury, point of view. So some of my experiments failed today, which I'm somewhat okay with. I'm not just disappointed in the range of my abilities. Using a bit of my unprocessed iron ore, I applied some of the heat to some of it, melting it down and purifying it with my storage space. After shaping some of the melted ore into several palm-sized tiles, I decided to experiment with two of the tiles. At first, I tried to make a dagger with the remaining materials, but even after three attempts with the mantle, all that came out was a low-grade thin blades that looked like they were cast into shapes rather than hammered and sharpened into form. Honestly, the more I think about it, the more I realize that I do feel frustrated. I was able to make something better out of scrapped lawnmower blade and a table leg, yet I can't put together a little dagger with the power of magic. Anyways, what I ended up doing was making a small chainmail sheet by increasing my focus and reducing the scale of my perception. I began pulling off little wedges of the dagger I melted back into a tile. Afterwards, I started bending these into a shape and chaining them along. With a small number of materials I had committed to this project, I only created a square foot of piece of chainmail. 
maybe I'll have the potential of putting out armor. In other news, since the black-furred cub returned to his little escapade with Basti, the cubs have taken to sitting at the entrance of the call room, now actively observing and watching the outside with anticipation and wonder. Perhaps I can have them visit the haven of people down there. It'd be good for them to socialize with others, especially considering that this cave is all they've known. However, looking at Basti, even as she pretends to be asleep, she's worriedly watching the cubs from her sleeping area. With one eye open and her tail occasionally lashes out with anxiety, I don't think she's going to be open to this idea as me. Checking in on Uruuru, his growth rate has been the more visibly impressive thing to witness. After scoring a few kills on a knight and a couple of the acolytes a few days ago, as well as his own hunting, he is nearly double in size. He's now coiling comfortably before my pedestal with his now seven foot long body. The no longer the little three to four foot noodle of a snake. He was pretty close to his original size, though he certainly feels more impressive than the snake he was before coming into my service. The big guy still likes to chew on his tail though, so I guess he finds comfort in the act. Meanwhile, Captain Jack the Sparrow, my chattering scoutbird, has been quite busy little sparrow. In the two days, he's built up a network of 20 other birds to protect the territory I trusted to him. I can't help but wonder if that is a unique trait due to him being a bird or something, the ability to recruit and influence other animals. I can't help but wonder, while I can communicate directly with Jack, he can communicate back and share his senses. I can't seem to outright influence his birds outside of sensing where they are. I can't complain, though. They've been brought me a healthy stream of manner outside of what I'm pulling in from the air. That, in turn, has kept me busy with my experiments, so I don't get too bored just waiting around. Still, I can't help but wonder if Basti and Uruuru can also recruit animals into my service. If they can't, then fair enough. But if they can, do they not feel the need to, perhaps? Maybe I'll bring it up in the morning. Watching the cubs for a while longer, they in turn sat up for a bit more at the entrance, just watching the sunset. I can't help but have the smile on my metaphorical face as they dozed off in a small pile at the door, Basti getting up at that point to bring them to bed. The next morning. Oh, it looks like I've got a visitor. Zasida seems to have made the trek up the mountain first thing in the morning and is now patiently waiting outside by the entrance to the atrium. Come in, Zasida. What brings you to me this morning? The copper-scaled lizardkin ducks down through the entryway, standing tall once inside before sitting on his knees before my pedestal. Pit Mori, I bring grave tidings. There seems to be an infestation of undead beneath your mountain. Where they came from, we do not know, but they were actively malicious and tried to kill two of our people when they were in the mine for awe. Well then, that's a hell of a good morning for you. What sort of undead are we talking about? Are they like my zombies? Zasita had to think about that for a moment before shaking his head. No, Vidmori, if I'm being honest, your undead are almost entirely unique compared to what we know. These undead are composed of ancient corpses and giant mishmash collection of skeletons. Skeletons? A moving skeleton sounds much more an odd concept. I mean, yeah, I guess Halloween had the right idea regarding spooky monsters. I see, well, um... I'll have one of my beasts check it out. Thank you for letting me know. You can go now. Zasseton nods in understanding and is about to leave, but then he stops as he gets down on one knee this time. Vitmori, uh, please forgive my greed, uh, but can I ask something of you? 
Hmm. Sure, what's up? I ask and send my attention out somewhere else. Good thing I noticed he wasn't leaving yet. Zasada hesitated, his tongue passing over his teeth thoughtfully. You granted me this powerful and perfect body, yet uh, I can do nothing with it. If you will forgive me, I know from glimpses of memories that you have unintentionally shared with me that you were a formidable and great warrior from the world you came from. Can, can you teach me to be a fighter like yourself? Huh. I didn't even realize I shared stuff with him. Yikes. I hope I haven't been giving him nightmares. I suppose I can help. Sure, I'll help you. Head down the mountain and I'll guide you to a cave part of the way down. I have someone for you to meet. At that, Zasita couldn't help but grin as he hopped up. Thank you, Great One. I am honored by your generosity. At that, he hurried out. Shit, instead of having skeletons in my closet, now I've got a ton in my basement. End of chapter. Unknown point of view. Me in! What do you think you're doing sitting on your ass? Get up and try again! Byron was telling me off again. Where did Dad find this guy? He's been beating me up with a punching bag for the last few hours, and it's getting annoying. Mal, excuse me. You're not the one getting smashed into by a punching bag launched on a motorized track. I snapped with frustration, pushing myself up on shaky knees and scraped up hands and arms. No excuses, you little turd. Your pops asked me to make sure you fix up that sloppy-ass crap excuse of a stance you got there. Byron retorted with a booming voice, though a smirk on his face. Oh, ha, ha. He's having fun at my expense. I can't help but sigh as I dust off my pants before picking up the staff, which is serving as my weapon in this exercise. I'm a kid. What do you expect? I can't stop this thing if that's two times heavier than me. Byron laughed, like a fool out Betty laughed, as he shook his head. <laughs> then you're going to be here all day, kid. Now then, deal with the problem. With that, he pushed a button and suddenly the punching bag was launched. I dug in my heels and held up my staff to block it once more, but I couldn't help but wince as it quickly approached. In the next moment, I'm sprawled on the ground, my face just throbbing as I'm pretty sure I've heard something crack a moment ago. Ow! I think my nose is broken, I say with a resigned annoyance. It's not like it's my first time, but it always sucked when it did happen. Byron doesn't approach to help me or deal with my injury, and I don't expect him to, as I grit my teeth and snap my nose back into place using both hands. That sucked. How long are you planning on lying there? This ain't no time for a break, boyo. Myron barked out, which meant that was enough slacking for me as I pushed myself to my feet. Again, he called out, barely leaving me with enough time to blow some blood out of my nose when I took my place once more. I huffed and retook my stance, holding out my staff as I dug in. With a push of a butt, Byron launched a bag at me again. But you know what? I'm done with this. At the last second, I defiantly dodged the bag and swung my staff so hard at it that the staff snapped upon impact, and my already scraped up hands were now shaky and numb on top of the pain I was in. Turning to look, I see Byron stomping over to me, his black tactical boots kicking up dirt with each step while I hold my ground and stare up at him. He had a stern expression on his face, his built figure towering over me and casting a shadow. Though, after a moment, he flashed his pearly whites and clapped my shoulder, nearly knocking me off my already unsteady feet. Finally! 
You're getting the right idea. You got stupid orders from a stupid person with instructions that would have screwed you over had you followed them. You would have never stopped that bag. Hell, even I have a hard time with it. But look at you. It may have taken a few dozen times of getting your ass kicked, but you learned the lesson on your own. I... I was confused, and the expression on my little face certainly said it all as Byron chuckled again and continued. <laughs> Learn to think for yourself, kiddo, and find solutions to issues that you can do. Don't blindly follow orders, but most importantly, always get back up again. If you're still moving, you can make a difference. He patted my shoulder again and stepped back. Now go on, get those wounds patched up. Your mom wants you to finish your homework before dinner. He teased as he walked off to start putting away his equipment. I was a bit dazed by the lesson I was supposed to be learning, but I couldn't help but smile at the fact that I'd managed to earn his approval at the end. Zassiter point of view. To think that I could learn how to be a warrior of all things at my age. These days are odd indeed. Zassiter couldn't help but smile. The chance to learn a skill like this had not been available to him all his life. Yet, here he was, getting to learn from a mighty being from another world. Descending the steps from the core chamber, Zassiter was guided by Vitmori to a simple-looking cave entrance. Ducking inside, he was surprised to find the interior was made of a taller than the entrance itself. As he walked further inside, small little orbs glimmered like starlight formed a path above him and illuminated the way. As his claws clacked against the stone, he could hear the whoosh and swish of a blade swing cut through the air. That's right, I'm supposed to meet someone here, he remembered all too suddenly, as he wondered who he could be meeting here. Finally, Zassida stepped into an open rectangular room with neatly smooth and carved walls, floor and ceiling. Three orbs of faintly glimmering light formed along the top, illuminating the room. Inside was an ashen-skinned man wearing what looked to be simple leather armor. However, for whatever reason, he had tiles of stone strapped to specific points around his arms, legs, chest, and shoulders. Zasita, meet Dread. Dread, this is Zasita. But Mori's voice echoed out in their minds. Dread finished following through with a simple vertical strike, followed by a horizontal slash when he slowed to a stop. Correcting his posture, he stood and sheathed his blade before looking over and flashing a surprisingly warm smile. You must be the Shepherd Zassiter, yes? Vidmori has told me about you. He was excited to meet someone new. Since he first came to existence not so long ago, the experience of meeting new people was relatively novel, his voice still carrying a pleasing cadence and smoothness. Zassiter, for one, was taken back. He couldn't be sure, but this man before him had to be some kind of undead. The signs were there, especially with those glowing eyes. Yet Dread was intelligent and very coordinated. Not only that, he was sweating and displaying the bodily functions of a living person. It took a couple moments before Zasta remembered where he was and responded with a smile. Ah, yes. It is a pleasure to meet you, Dread. Do you happen to know why I'm meeting with you? He asked curiously. Before Dredd could think of an answer, Vidmori called out into their minds. Zasta, I want you first to start training with Dredd here. He's still learning the muscle memory of this body, but he's already got the fundamentals down. Since my style is rather unorthodox, 
I want you to learn what your body can do first and get a firm foundation in your skills before learning anything special. Zasseter felt, well, he felt just a little disappointed. However, he was by no means a fighter, and he's old enough to appreciate wisdom when handed it. But Maury continued, speaking to Dredd, even though the two of them could hear him at once. Dredd, uh, it is said that by teaching others, you can reinforce your skills and knowledge. So teach Zasseter when he comes around, and further establish the foundation of your skills. Dredd knelt on one knee, lowering his head, before looking where the call would be. It will be done. Creator that Mori. I shall do my best. Zassiter also knelt to one knee and showed his thanks, something that Dredd had noticed, which brought a smile to his face. At that point, they heard a clattering of weapons. Turning to look, there was a small assortment by the room's wall. There was another longsword and shield, two maces and a spear, though even as the two of them looked over the weapons, a weapon rack of sorts seemed to grow out of the stone wall when Vitmori echoed in their minds once again. I want the both of you to familiarize yourself with these weapons. Start with the sword, then the sword and shield, mace and mace with shield, and then the spear and the spear with the shield. Find what best suits your body and your style. I'll leave you two to it. With that, they could feel the connection wane. Dread grinned eagerly as he stood upright and began properly hanging and storing the equipment on the new weapons rack, before looking at Zassiter, as he had passed over a sheathed sword. All right, let's see what you've got. Basti, point of view. There is danger below my home to my cubs to Vidmori, and to the people in the camp Vidmori took in. How could she not have noticed? As the right hand of Vidmori, how could she let an oversight like this escape her notice? Basti growls to nobody in particular, the rumbling in her throat audible to any who cared to listen. Before long, she stood before the cave entrance where the danger was hiding. She went deeper inside, her eyes adjusted to the darkness, shadows. It was a comforting sensation to be enveloped in them. It feels like a soothing blanket, yet it was as familiar to her as a sickened skin. She cleared through the first passageway, uncavern with no issues, Though, the moment she stepped into the second passageway, she could feel the shift in the air. It was like being in Vidmori's bubble, as he called it. However, the sensation was alien as it could be despite the familiarity. She could feel the presence watching her, and even as she crossed the passageway, she could hear the clattering in the distance. The presence knew that she was there, so there was no point in hiding. With that thought, a barrier blocking something in her mind was released. Her manner hot and ring start to pulse and shuddering. She can't see it, but she can feel her body begin to shift and grow. The shadows around her are seemingly being pulled around her like a shroud as she steps forth. Her paws landing on the heavy thuds as she becomes something more than she was before. As the clattering grew louder, she couldn't help but call back in response as she bellowed out a roar of challenge. At that, she sprinted forward, her paws impacted heavily with every step as she flew into the next open cavern, only to be greeted by a sea of off-white and rotted flesh as she crashes into it. End of chapter. I would quickly like to thank the T5 channel members and Patreons. Caspar Arnholtz, Cam Maxwell, Barky, Lord Azrakal, It's Difficult to Pronounce, Dragzoon, WRE, Holly's Sister, Arcadian. Thank you very much.